Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode, part three of Mormonism and the Rules of Evidence. I am once more joined by my good friend and fellow attorney, Colby Reddish. How are you doing this morning, Colby? Good morning, RFM. I am doing well. How are you? I am fine, thank you. A little bit bleary this Saturday morning, but I sacrifice for my art. <laughs> yes, you do. Well, we've had two parts of this so far, labeled imaginatively enough, part one and part two, on Mormonism and the rules of evidence. And it's been pretty favorably received. A lot of people are interested in hearing what you have to say about the law and about how it applies to Mormonism. And actually, I think one of the things that we're getting into somewhat broadly is if it were a court of law where we are trying to prove Mormonism true, or the LDS Church is trying to prove Mormonism true, what would that look like, and how much evidence would even be admissible? I think that's one of the things we've evaluated. I think the other real, um, you know, one of the reasons this topic comes to my mind is that, um, and we kind of started from this uh, frame of view in part one, is that these rules on what is admissible, what's credible in a court of law, have evolved over centuries. They, they predate the existence of the LDS Church, and and they have specifically evolved over time to, um, and, and I'm not saying they're perfect, but they have specifically evolved over time to make sure that what happens inside of courtrooms is the most reasonable, the most reliable way of getting at fact. And we've talked about some of those tools Um Obviously, in part two, we talked a lot about evaluating testimony, specifically the requirements for what what uh, comprises testimony that's, you know, personal knowledge, and then it has to happen under cross-examination. But that's that's really the goal here, is to give us new ways to think about these uh, church history concepts and uh, evaluating documents and testimony from church history. Right. And I know we want to continue with that and get to the one thing. That we've never gotten to yet, even though we've tried both times, and that's expert testimony. But before we get there, I want to say one more thing. And that is that I was thinking this morning about Elder Oaks, which I frequently do, sometimes when I'm in the shower. But this morning, I was thinking about his statement from 1985, I believe it was, when he said that it is not the church's responsibility to tell both sides of the story. And actually, he was saying, it's not the church's responsibility to tell both sides of the story, and it's not the anti-Mormon's responsibility to tell both sides of the story. But this is where he's lambasting the media for coming down kind of critically on the LDS church for things related to Salamander Letters and Mark Hoffman. But as I thought more about it, if we are to take him at his word, I think that what he actually is saying is that not only is the church not going to tell us the whole story. They're only going to tell us what they consider to be the faith-promoting side of the story. But actually, if we want to get the full story, according to Elder Oaks, we have to go to anti-Mormon literature, because that's our last resort. There's no other place to get it, according to Elder Oaks. Your thoughts? Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, and it's a really good point because we're talking about the rules of evidence. We're talking about the legal field and there's also this, I mean, I don't really agree with uh, Elder Oaks that uh, a church that represents Jesus or claims to represent Jesus Christ should behave that way. But I will say from his background as a law professor and a lawyer, that that's, he, he's bringing a, a principle from the legal field, this idea that we get to the truth because of an adversarial system. 
he's almost bringing that idea into church history. Um, and so I, I don't agree with it from his um, job description as an apostle, but I think it does fit very well with what he had done in a previous life as a lawyer. Right. Of course, the other side of that is that he's saying, we won't tell you the other side of the story, but not only that, we're going to discourage you from finding out what the other side of the story is by telling you, you shouldn't be reading the other side of the story. Yeah. If I can tell you, you know, um, when I was in the middle of my faith crisis, I know that you had done an episode uh, I can't remember if it was in conjunction with someone else, but you had done an episode laying out not just um, the 1985 talk that you're referencing, but Elder Oaks had also given a talk at the J. Reuben Clark Law School at BYU called, I think, Gospel Lessons About Lying or something. It was something uh, shocking like that. It wasn't what the gospel teaches about telling the truth. It was what the gospel teaches about lying. It was sort of a yeah. how-to talk. It was. And I, I believe in the same program that you had done that I'd listened to. Um, there was a similar talk given by uh, Boyd Packer, the uh, mantle is far, far greater than the intellect. And I know that uh, President Nelson back in the day had also given a very similar one, basically defending not telling the whole truth as not necessarily being lying. I will tell you that understanding that these men who led, led the church their belief is legitimate when they make these statements that they really believe they have no duty to tell both sides of the story or to tell you um, the full picture. Um, that really was a game changer for me in evaluating the things I had heard from them, you know, for the 32 years of my life at that point. Um, because you, you, you know, if you weren't around for those talks, which I wasn't, I was too young, you don't know, that that's an assumption that these men bring to the table, that they're not, that, that they have maybe a different definition of honesty, particularly in a, in a church related gospel context than you would. Right. It reminds me of a murder trial. It was somewhat a sensational murder trial here in this little County where I practice a number of years ago. And it was so obviously a self-defense case, but the prosecutor thought otherwise and came forward, brought charges. It went to trial and the attorney, by the way, giving you a spoiler alert, the individual, the defendant ends up being acquitted due to self-defense because this guy shows up on his doorstep at night, banging on the door and claiming he's going to kill him. All right. So he does shoot him on his doorstep. He ends up being acquitted. But I remember the line in closing argument from this attorney, the defense attorney, which is he told the jury under the law in the state of Washington, if someone tells you they're going to kill you, you can believe them. It was a fantastic line. And I think when I played, and I did do an episode about all three of those, when Elder Packer and Elder Oaks and Elder Nelson, now the number one and two individuals in the church, of course, Elder Packer having passed away. But as of this recording on January 7th, 2023, President Nelson is the president and President Oaks is first counselor in the first presidency, the number one and number two gentlemen leading the church today, if they tell you they're not going to tell you both sides of the story of Mormonism, you can believe them. Yeah. And I think the the reason that I'm so grateful that I had listened to that program that you'd done, um, I think at this point, it was probably five years ago, because I was listening to all your back episodes at one point. Um, I think the reason it's important is that 
Uh, it's the notion of informed consent, which is that if people are comfortable participating in a system and are comfortable following people who feel no compunction about um, not necessarily lying to them, they make that very clear in these talks, but in not giving them the whole picture uh, before they make big, big life decisions. I honestly, that's their, you know, who am I to tell them how to govern their lives? If that's, if the church is working for them and if um, they get value out of the church, I, I sincerely hope that they continue to. Um, but for me, I know listening to that, that that just did not, knowing that these men felt that they could legitimately, from my definition, lie to people and have people make large scale life decisions based on uh, mistruths and half information. I was not comfortable following those men any longer. Oh, right. And that's like the line from Supernatural where the angel says, we didn't lie to you. We just withheld certain truths to manipulate you. <laughs> Is that Castillo? No, it isn't actually. It's one of the, he looks like a GA is who he looks like. He's the older fellow anyway. But the, I love that line because it's exactly what the LDS church does. And I expect that would be what their response would be if ever we could hold their feet to the fire on the issue and get an answer is we didn't lie to you. We just withheld certain truths to manipulate you. Can I, can I say one thing about that quote? Cause that's interesting. I've never heard that before, even though I do like the, the show supernatural. Um, the only case, and I, I think this says a lot about the intent behind those um, statements is the only reason I can see lying to someone or not telling them the truth to manipulate them into doing something and being okay with that is with a little child that doesn't understand maybe the danger they're in. What does that say about the infantilizing of the members that the leaders really believe in? Because I think they legitimately believe they're doing what's right. I think that's a just an interesting thought experiment for people to think about. What does it say that the only way you would probably be okay with that is if you viewed the person you were talking to as not capable of understanding, you know, the information that you're giving them, infantilizing them. That's that's how they view you. And, you know, we actually are going to get to the expert witnesses tonight. But this reminded me of a quote. I believe it was from C.S. Lewis that I saw the other day. And I'm going to try and find it here for you. Here it is. Of all tyrannies, a tyranny sincerely exercised for the good of its victims may be the most oppressive. It would be better to live under robber barons than under omnipotent moral busybodies. The robber baron's cruelty may sometimes sleep. His cupidity may at some point be satiated. But those who torment us for our own good will torment us without end, for they do so with the approval of their own conscience. That's from C.S. Lewis. What do you think about that quote? Well, I'm glad that you brought up a, a quote from the 13th Apostle, as he's been called before. Um, <laughs> it's interesting because I know that um, later in his life, C.S. Lewis wrote a lot of apologetic works about Christianity. And I think the most interesting thing to me is just knowing his perspective. And I'm not sure at what point in his life he made that statement. But knowing his perspective, um, if I'm going to be honest, at my space in deconstruction, I would apply that quote not just to church leaders, but perhaps even to any deity associated with an Abrahamic religion. 
Oh, well, yeah, I think so. And I think that this is perhaps the deeper meaning behind the oft-quoted expression, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it also goes hand in hand with um, Doctrine and Covenants 121, which I think is one of the uh, things that Joe Smith gave us that I still view as valuable, which is that it is, you know, the nature and disposition of all men as soon as they get a little power as they supposed to exercise unrighteous dominion. That's essentially what um, C.S. Lewis is talking about. Good point. All right. Now we're definitely getting to expert witnesses. Tell us about expert witnesses, please. Yeah. So let's talk about expert witnesses. So last time we talked about testimony, we talked about personal testimony and the requirement for personal knowledge for a witness to be able to come into a courtroom and testify. Now, there are other types of witnesses known as expert witnesses. So let's talk about expertise and experts and how that applies in a legal trial. Yeah. So sometimes at a trial, a litigant is going to need to bring in expert testimony. So if we think of any case that involves um, someone's health, you're probably going to have to have at least one doctor involved um, and usually other experts as well um, that will testify to the damage that that caused to someone's um, potential earnings, their livelihood. And so there are a lot of words that have been said about expert testimony. And I think increase in expert testimony um, and the rules that apply to it have increased a lot in the general public because of the rise of uh, like true crime stories and true crime dramas, because they um, I think people are very surprised at how simple it can be to have someone qualified as an expert um, because it is a fairly low bar. Have you seen um, as you've worked as a defense attorney, have you seen state expert witnesses that you, uh, you know, would have caused you to raise an eyebrow at their level of, uh, quote unquote, expertise? Well, I think so, mainly because let's say someone who's working at the crime lab, person who works at the crime lab, they start, I'm sure they're trained, they have education to be hired, but they start day one testing things. And those things and the tests done on those can be at issue in a trial where they will be called as a witness. And I've certainly seen people called who it was basically their first year when they were testifying as an expert witness and allowed to do so, I believe, properly by the court. Yeah, it is a fairly low bar. Essentially, that person's expertise, whether it's through training, through experience, it just has to be helpful to the judge or jury in deciding some issue in the case. Now, there is a test that has evolved in the federal court system known as the Daubert test. And I think you said that your Washington analog is known as the Fry test. Is that right? Yes. F-R-Y-E. I expect every state has a similar type of test. Yeah. Idaho is interesting in the sense that, so we're going to talk about the Daubert test and um, talk about the five different factors. Idaho, where I practice, is a little different in the sense that we use the Daubert factors, but we haven't adopted them as dispositive, which is very frustrating, I think, for lawyers, basically. So you have to talk about the same Daubert factors, but they're not all binding, essentially. So um, one of the things attorneys, I think, loathe the most is when we have unclear rules for litigating a case. And this is one where I'm frustrated with Idaho's approach because we kind of use the test, but it's not dispositive. It's kind of like, well, why would you even talk about that test then if you're not going to adopt it the same way? Well, let me tell you how it is here in Washington before you tell how it is in Idaho, because we just have two parts to the test. The first part is that the person testifying has to be an expert in the field, and that can be liberally construed, whether it's by training, whether it's by education, whether it's by experience. 
And of course, as you know, even before we get to that, it has to be an issue that's going to be helpful to the jury. In other words, an expert doesn't get to testify on things that a jury can understand without an expert, right? So once we've got past that threshold, there's a two-part analysis. First off, the witness has to be considered to be an expert in the field, and the judge makes that call on whether the witness qualifies as an expert and gets to testify to the jury. The second part is that the expert's testimony itself can't be just crazy stuff. There actually is a gatekeeping function that the judge provides to keep junk stuff and junk science out of court. And what that is, is very simply that whatever it is that the expert's going to testify about has to be generally accepted in the scientific community. It can't be about the earth is flat or we've got a ball of water at the center of the earth instead of a ball of magma, right? It's got to be something that's accepted in the general scientific community in order for an expert to testify about it in court. How is that different from Idaho? So let me read the Daubert test and then I'll kind of talk the federal test and then I'll talk about Idaho's, uh, how Idaho specifically applies this test. So the Daubert test comes out of a federal uh, case and it gives us five different um, things to consider. The first is whether the theory or technique that will be employed by the expert is generally accepted in the scientific community. So I think that lines up with what you've just told us about your Fry test. The second is whether it has been subjected to peer review and publication. The third is whether it can and has been been tested. The fourth is whether the test has a known error rate. And then there's a consideration really of how accurate is this? Um, There's no hard and fast rule there in the federal system. And then the fifth is whether the research was conducted independent of the particular litigation or dependent on an intention to provide the proposed testimony. The idea behind this fifth one is that a scientific theory should stand on its own. It shouldn't be cobbled together after the fact to deal with the facts of one particular uh, case. It should be a a theory that um, this expert, or at least some experts, were working on um, to explain concepts outside of the uh, particular case at issue. Hmm. The way that Idaho basically applies this test is that we adopt all of these factors but they are not necessarily dispositive. Um, so particularly the the one I know in particular that there's been a lot of litigation on is whether it has been subjected to peer review and publication. So in the federal system, that is a requirement. You have to establish basically that this has been, that this theory has been subjected to peer review and publication, which in my view makes a lot of sense. It's and basically- can I, say, can I say something there? Yeah, it course. does make a lot of sense. And I know you're going to want to expatiate on that particular element of it, but it is hard to conceive for me at least of a theory being accepted in the general scientific community without its having been subjected to peer review and publication. Exactly. Those two follow together, uh, I think. Um, and yeah, the the reason that Idaho, I remember the Idaho Supreme Court case on this issue, the reason that they do not strictly require a theory to be subject to peer review and publication is because they want to allow for cutting edge medical testimony or uh, science, scientific testimony. And um, I can completely understand that um, inclination. I think the problem is that then you have the judge, like you said, we, we have a very similar setup here. You have a judge that's, um, you know, playing this gatekeeping function and most judges don't have a scientific background. So that's probably the inherent problem with the the not strictly re- 
you know, providing that a theory that's going to be testified to requires peer review and publication is that then the judge who may have no scientific training or any applicable training has to decide whether basically how legitimate they think this scientific or other type of expertise testimony is. The idea is you don't, like you said, you don't want junk science coming in. Um, and so judges do play that uh, gatekeeping function. But I think Idaho, the way Idaho specifically has interpreted the test makes it a little bit uh, tougher. I want to ask you a question at this point, and I don't want to ask it prematurely. So you tell me if it's premature. Sure. But how does this idea about a scientific theory being subjected to peer review and publication before it's admissible in court apply to Mormonism? Perfect. That's exactly where we're going to go. So the reason that we wanted to talk about this is that oftentimes apologetics and the people who write apologetics, sometimes they have expertise in a particular field. Sometimes they don't. Um, But the biggest reason I wanted to talk about this is that there is very little. If we were to treat apologetic pieces like expert testimony and do this analysis on whether or not they would come into a courtroom, they almost certainly would not. The vast majority of apologetic apologetic works. I can think of uh, two main reasons, and we're going to just kind of talk cursorily about the first one, and then the second one we'll talk about more in depth. The first is that, as you said, to qualify as an expert, someone has to have expertise. And so one of the things I think I would uh, point to with certain apologists And I think of people who have training in one particular field, but then they write apologetic pieces about church history or about very, very specific topics on which they have no training and no expertise. So those those types of apologetics, um, I think, would be problematic if we were to apply this test. Now, the second one is just this. Is it a legitimate scientific or is it a legitimate theory that's been subject to peer review and publication? Is it generally accepted in the field? And that's the the second one that we really wanted to focus on. So I have a specific apologetic work in mind. And the reason is because this, when I hit it in the gospel topics essay, um, one of the things my wife and I did while we were studying um, and really trying to determine, kind of setting aside as much of our confirmation bias as we could, one of the things we did was we read the gospel topics essay all of the gospel topics essays, we read all of the footnotes, and then we did like annotated versions of each of those gospel topics essays, handwritten, talking about the arguments, talking about what the footnotes showed. And so that's where I encountered this um, apologetic work. So in the gospel topics essay regarding DNA and the Book of Mormon, one of the big premises that the church's essay takes is that the Book of, that the Book of Mormon people's were just a smaller subset of people who were already here. Um, and they're doing that because DNA indicates that there's no uh, Semitic or ancient Hebrew DNA in the, the people who remain here in America and the First Nations peoples. And so they create, and I remember the Gospel Topics essay using this word, they create these others that were supposedly present here even though they're not mentioned at all in the Book of Mormon text. And in fact, the Book of Mormon even says that the land shall be kept um, from I think secret or preserved. What was it? From other people. Yeah. Preserved from, from the knowledge all of other, other people. people. Right. It's and a so, promised land. I'm so sorry. I keep interrupting you, but I remember the passage. It's a promised land. The only people who show up here are the people that God leads here in order to keep its promised nature promised. So there's nobody in the land except for those whom God leads there. 
Right. And so to make this argument or as scientific expertise, the expertise that they cite to, to make this argument, right, since we're talking about expert testimony, is they cite to a paper from John Sorensen, I think from the early 90s, um, called When Lehi's Party Arrived in the Land Did They Find other there, Others There. And I think it's in the Journal of Book of Mormon Studies, if I remember correctly. But this entire paper, um, so again, where I hit this paper in my process was I'm reading the Gospel Topics essay. My wife and I are really struggling to understand obje- as objectively as we can whether the church's truth claims measure up or not. We hit this footnote and... I had in my mind the same, you know, scripture that you just had, that this was a promised land, that there were no people here before. I had always, I think the other problem with this theory, and we'll get to it in just a second, but that the Book of Mormon narrative actually builds in specifically mentioning when they encounter like the Mulekites and when they encounter the the records from the Jaredites. So to believe this theory, it's a real stretch for me as I'm hitting this as I'm already just hitting the sentence that the church is using this footnote uh, to provide substantiation for. Then I go read this paper and I was just blown away um, at how it essentially is just explaining away all of the evidence and making an argument from necessity. And so I think that's the reason we wanted to talk about this paper. Have you ever read this piece by Sorensen? Oh, sure. I read it when it was hot off the press. This was back in my heyday of apologetics. Well, I'll tell you that um, a couple of the examples I remember from this paper independently without going back to refresh my recollection is that it talks about a number of instances in the Book of Mormon where it doesn't make sense unless we presuppose that there are other people that the text does not mention. And in fact, that the text seems to foreclose. And one of those examples is in, I think it's Jacob 7, the first uh, Antichrist, Sherem, right? The first of three. And I think that uh, the second one is in Alma 1 with Nehor and then Alma 30 with Korihor, if I'm remembering my Book of Mormon correctly. But Jacob 7 and the incident with Sherem is of particular interest because this is very early in the history of the Nephites. Jacob is the guy who's leading. He's Nephi's brother. He just came over. So we have a very limited population of Nephites at this point. And I think they split with the uh, the Lamanites but uh, by the time of Jacob. But Jacob is still first generation in the Americas. And yet, all of a sudden, striding onto the stage in Jacob chapter 7 is this fellow named Sherem, who apparently Jacob has never encountered before. And he's a full-grown man. And you start saying, well, how on earth could it be that there's this guy who's a Nephite with this very small community still that Jacob has never seen before. And I think there's also something in the text about how Sherem had studied the language so that he was expert in the use of the language. Well, that's a strange thing. And that's one of those things that John Sorensen uses to argue for others in the land. Another thing is something that a lot of people have noticed when they're reading through those small books after Second Nephi and before Mosiah, all the little books, right? First Nephi, Second Nephi, Jacob, Enos, Jeremiah, Words of Mormon, and then Mosiah. And those little books, there's a lot of different people in those little books. And, you know, they just make a small entry on the records. You know, I'm a wicked man, but I'm keeping my job doing the records and I'm handing it off now to this guy and so forth. Well, what happens is that there seems to be a remarkably high, perhaps impossibly high rate of 
population growth among the small group of Nephites to the point where not many generations after they get there, they're having wars with the Lamanites. And the Lamanites are half of them, or presumably around half of them, that split off after Lehi dies. So you have a very strange situation where it seems that the narrative itself cannot account for the vast numbers of people it needs to be present for later scenes based upon how it describes these people to have come about and been born. So this is another place where the presence of others in the land comes in to save the day. Well, these other people who are not mentioned in the text once again and are being used, like you said, I think an argument from necessity and are being used to justify how it is that the Book of Mormon could get it so wrong with the population growth. Well, this is how it is. It's because there are other people there that the Book of Mormon doesn't mention. It's a much bigger population. And now the Book of Mormon peoples with superior technology coming from the Middle East assume a position of leadership of some sort within this community, but they're still, their genetics is very, very small and ultimately gets occluded completely over the passage of time, which is why there's no DNA representation from them that has been discovered. So what I wanted to say here about this is that you're correct that if we take the Book of Mormon as gospel history, and when I say you, I mean John Sorensen, John Soren is correct, that if we take the Book of Mormon as gospel history at the outset, and we assume the conclusion that it's correct history, then unmentioned others must have been present to make it work. But when the provenance of the Book of Mormon is what is disputed, and it's the foundational question that you're not assuming, but you're actually analyzing whether this is correct history, when the provenance of the Book of Mormon is analyzed, making up unmentioned others who existed looks like a way of trying to save the Book of Mormon from its own mistakes. Yeah, that's exactly right. It's using your conclusion to help inform a question that answers whether the conclusion is correct or not. It is it is quite literally the definition of a logical circle of circular reasoning. It's and, and I want to be really clear here, uh, and we'll talk more about this in our concluding remarks about um, the burden of proof and standards of evidence. But every single one of us believes in logical circles. Every single one of us. We can't we can't prevent it. Whether you go to the I think the bedrock of a logical circle, which is Cartesian logic, I think therefore I am. Every single one of us does believe in certain logical circles. It just is a consequence of being human and trying to make decisions. I think it's important, though, that we acknowledge when we're in logical circles. And when we're in logical circles, my belief is that we should apply the consequences of those decisions that may be the result of logical circles. We should help hold them probably a little looser than we should, you know, conclusions that we've reached through the result of studying external evidence that don't rely on logical circles. What do you think right. of that? Well, all I, all I think about it is, what Billy Preston used to say, will it go round in circles? Nothing, huh? Nothing on that reference. I'm sorry. You want me to sing it for you? Go ahead. No, I'll just give the next line. Will it fly high like a bird up in the sky? Anyway, those who get it, get it. If it were the evening, I'd be letting it go. But in the morning, I'm a little bit croaky. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. And I, I think it's just important that when we um, when we're studying these types of works, that we consider the effect of these arguments. So when we're talking about um, this piece by Sorensen, 
I actually don't begrudge Sorensen for trying to make it work. That's his, that's the assumption he brings to the table. I think the thing I do begrudge is when apologists and apologetic works try and pretend that their conclusions are reached solely through the exercise of logic and evidence when they're not, when they're starting with the conclusion in mind and then they're working backwards. They're not looking at the evidence and saying, what is the most plausible? They are looking at the conclusion and saying, what is possible? What will possibly get me back to where I started Mm -hmm. when I look at this evidence? It's the best, I mean, the best statement I've ever heard about it comes from uh, one of the church's leading apologists on the book of Abraham, which is Carrie Mulestein. You know, I start with the assumption that these things are true. And then, so any evidence I receive, I try and fit into that paradigm. All I am saying is that when that's the level of, when that's how we're using our expertise, that probably would not fly inside of a courtroom, even if it would get past the, the courts, the judges gatekeeping function. Can you imagine having a statement like that go in front of a jury? How do you think that would go for that person's proposed expert testimony? Well, he's just destroyed his entire credibility. Exactly right. If you, and start that's with the, the, if you start with a conclusion, your evidence will always fit your conclusion because what you're doing is consciously or subconsciously filtering the evidence and taking those things that support you and latching onto those. And then the things that don't support your conclusion, managing to explain those away or ignore them. Exactly. And so when we actually look at the elements of this Daubert test beyond just, you know, the kind of the, the foundational pieces, um, I just thought it was interesting as I was looking at, at John Sorensen's piece, there are 29 footnotes in his, uh, in this paper that we've been referencing, some of which are explanatory. So that means he's just explaining, you know, maybe a line that he didn't want to deal with in the, uh, the full text of the article. And then half, half of them, half of the 29 cite to Sorensen's other works or other publications of farms, which is the organization for which it was written. Um, there was a single site to Dr. Michael Coe, who is a non-Mormon expert on uh, Mesoamerica, um, who since passed away, as has Dr. Sorensen. And I think the, the point here is that if apologetics were subject to the test that lawyers and judges apply to expert testimony, they would almost certainly fail, if not at the judge's gatekeeping function, they would certainly not be convincing to a jury themselves. Right. This idea of starting with a conclusion in mind and then finding evidence to support your conclusion is exactly what I think was happening. It happens all the time. I'm sure it happens with me sometimes, although I try and guard against it. And I think that's about the best we can do as human beings is to be aware of it and guard as best we can against it and maybe have friends or other people who will correct us if we start going down that forbidden path. But I remember hearing about how the Heartlanders with um, Rodney Meldrum were starting to excavate. I think it wasn't this past summer. It was the summer before over in Iowa because they were looking for Zarahemla because their studies of the Book of Mormon have concluded in their mind that the city of Zarahemla was located at this place where they wanted to dig in Iowa. I'm pretty sure it's across the river from where Nauvoo was. So They haven't started yet, but there was discussion going on about it on a message board. And somebody was asking what it is they'll find. And I plugged in and I said, well, I predict that they will find exactly what it is they're looking for. 
I wish I would have been unmuted so that the audience could have caught my chuckle there. Um, but yeah, that's, <laughs> that's when, when your job is to find what you're looking for, you're almost certain to find what you're looking for. Yeah. I wish the, that you had been unmuted when I made the crack about thinking about elder Oaks in the shower. Yeah. You know, that's part of my daily routine too. What can I say? Um <laughs> So one other example I wanted to give of this is um, John Gee, Dr. John Gee. He is another of the church's leading apologists on the Book of Abraham uh, material. I I was um, reading some of his apologetic works, um, and this I think was in what's the new the new journal, the Maxwell Institute's new journal called? Do you remember? I think it's uh, well the Maxwell Institute's new journal. So you're not talking about the Interpreter? Sorry, it is the Interpreter. The Interpreter, a journal of Latter-day Saint thought. I can't do Daniel C. Peterson this morning. But anyway, yeah, it's Interpreter, a journal of Latter-day Saint thought. Recently, Interpreter, a journal of Mormon thought. But they changed the name because nothing's more important than changing names in order to be obedient to the dictates of the president of the church. Yeah, so John Gee wrote a piece for the Interpreter um, just, I think, in 2020. It might have been 2021. Um, but it's about the book of Abraham and it's about an apparent anachronism. Let me get the title here um, for the wind and the fire to be my chariot. Would that be it? Yes. And the, the, after the colon, the anachronism that wasn't, this is an interesting piece to me. Um, here's a quote from Dr. Gee's piece. He says, one indication that critics do not bother to read the book, they, he means the book of Abraham, is that to date, none have bothered to comment on an apparent anachronism in the text. To spot it as an anachronism, one would have to take the book of Mormon's, or sorry, the book of Abraham seriously as an ancient text, which most critics are unwilling to do. The purpose of this article is to discuss the apparent anachronism and then why it is not one. Just the introduction to this piece made me chuckle so much because this is he is laying out <laughs> that I am going to construct a straw man that no critic has ever made, that no critic has ever complained about this being an anachronism and then watch me strike it down. And I thought, isn't this an amazing statement on what passes for scholarship in the interpreter? Hmm. You're right. And which most critics are unwilling to do to read the book of Abraham. You see, I cannot imagine that Dr. Gee is unfamiliar with the criticisms of the book of Abraham, but most of those criticisms come from people who have actually done exactly what he says that most don't do, which is to look at the book of Abraham seriously as an ancient text, if only for the purpose of comparing it to what was going on in the world at the time that the book of Abraham purports to come from, and then pointing out that it doesn't look anything like the world that it claims to represent. So I think he's wrong there in the first case. The second thing is, yes, he's saying, now I've looked at it and I've seen another anachronism that critics didn't see, and I'm going to show you why it's not an anachronism. Why bring it up in the first place? It is an interesting thing that you're mentioning here. I do it's want to like say one creating a, it, it's quite literally the definition of creating a problem that no one's no one's complained about and then saying look at how clever I am in solving this problem that no one's ever complained about. Yes, the if only he could do such a good a good job in solving the problems that people have found and that people do complain about. Yeah, you would think you would spend your effort there first. I probably should have explained the apparent anachronism he's talking about in the text is the book of Abraham uses the word chariot 
And so he's talking about the technology of chariots and whether that lines up with Abraham's with Abraham provided he existed with with his lifetime basically is is the anachronism he's solving. Oh, my word. Really? Well, he might try and turn his talents to the use of the same word in the Book of Mormon and explain what the heck it's doing there in ancient America. Yeah, you would think. Um I on the first point that you just said, I really like that. The the fact that he's saying critics do not take the text of the book of Abraham seriously. I think one of the things I would point to if listeners um if there's any listener who who hears that from Dr. Gee and thinks that that's legitimate, I would point them to not just to keep pitching old episodes of Radio Free Mormon, but I would point them to the three-part interview you did with Dr. David Bakavoy. Because I will tell you, I put a lot of time into studying the book of Abraham, all of the translation problems. I read uh, Dan Vogel's book, Book of Abraham Apologetics. Um, I read a lot of even some responses to Dan's book, watched all of Dan's videos, watched the 15 hours twice with Dr. Rittner. But it wasn't until I actually listened to, I think it's about six, maybe nine hours with you and Dr. Bakavoy, where Dr. Bakavoy sets all those issues aside and says, let's just look at this as a textual narrative. We're going to assume there are no translation problems. I was blown away with his insight and his knowledge of the ancient world and how fatal just right out the gate it is to a, a belief in the text of the book of Abraham having legitimate ancient roots. Right. Well, I think I've identified your problem, Colby. You're a lazy learner. I am. I'm clearly a lazy learner. One last little point we wanted to talk about with uh, expert expertise and apologetics is uh, it wouldn't be fair if we didn't talk about fair Mormon or now they're just known, known as fair because they had to get rid of that verboten word. And we talked about this quote last interview, part two, we talked about the quote from Joseph in the history of the church, where he talks about keeping a church together, which is something that even Jesus hadn't done. And as I was looking for, this is just kind of something I stumbled on while we were preparing part two, as, as I was looking for that quote, looking for a citation for that quote, I found it on fair Mormon. And the interesting thing is that they, then they do this entire apologetic dance about statements in the history of the church. And this is the quote that I wanted to read from their website. They say, it is worth saying that in the general reliability of the history of the church, in view of the way it was put together, it is not the overall thrust or narrative that's likely to be inaccurate, but the nuances, the tone, and the details. This is precisely the opposite problem from which anti-Mormon critics would have us see it. They think the overall story of the history is incorrect, the divine intervention, revelation, Joseph Smith's prophetic calling, but then want us to accept the details of tone and mood that it furnishes, or at least they do when those details seem to put the prophet in a bad light. It is amusing that the very same people who vehemently reject the history of the church as an unreliable source when it seems to support the LDS position clutch to it their bosoms as an unparalleled historical treasure when they think they can use it as a weapon against the alleged errors of Mormonism. And they use this apologetic not just on the um, statement that Joseph made, you know, seemingly bragging that he's better than Jesus Christ, at least in this one aspect. They also do it with the kinderhook plates where they say that, oh, that was just scribes recording in Joseph's words. 
something that, you know, really he didn't say, or at least he may not have said. They do it similarly with the grammar and alphabet of the Egyptian language. When we get to the Book of Abraham translation problems, they do it with the happiness letter, which is um, another thing I've seen them try and discredit and say, no, that isn't something Joseph actually did. Now, looking at that statement from Fair, I think it's kind of hilarious because contrary to what they're saying here, critics looking to statements that the church has adopted as what it uh, what its history is, is what's known as an internal consistency test. So I know this is a little beyond uh, the scope of apologetics, but have you seen statements, little detailed statements from a witness come back to bite that witness in the keister when they're on the stand? Oh, absolutely. Because what you're doing at that point, and I think what you're driving at, is you're not comparing what the witness says at this point to something else that somebody else says. You're being totally internal with what that one witness has said. And if you can show that that one witness has contradicted him or herself, then that is effective impeachment. Well, depending upon the relevancy of the the issue on which they contradict themselves. Exactly. Exactly. And so that apologetic from from fair I just think it's hilarious because they they want to believe what is a grand narrative if not all of the details aggregated together. And so here, sorry, go ahead. No, I'm sorry. The first thing is that that cracks me up about this is that what the what the LDS church what the apologists are saying is that we've got a history of the church that's produced by the church and there are some problems with it. But the problems with it, the things that contradict what we want to establish as apologists those are the things that are wrong in the history of the church. And the things that we want to use to establish our narrative are the things that are right. Once again, they're arguing basically from their conclusion. And the fact is, is that what they're accusing the critics of the church of doing with the history of the church is what they themselves are doing, which is they will cherry pick those parts of the history of the church that they want to cherry pick. And the apologists, or excuse me, the critics are doing the same thing. But the apologists accuse the critics of doing it as if the apologists aren't doing the same thing themselves. Right. And they do it with seemingly no external indication, right? So they'll pick statements from the history of the church that they want you to believe, like you just said. Then they'll pick ones that become a problem. Only because they become a problem do they point at them and say, well, maybe Joseph didn't really say that, right? It's an argument that arises again. We come back to this word. It's an argument that arises out of necessity, not because one is following the evidence. And that's what I think, as you just laid out, demonstrates that it's clearly conclusion-based reasoning. It's we're starting with the conclusion and we're going to force every piece in there to fit, regardless of whether or not the evidence would dictate that it fits. Right. And from the critics' point of view, they're trying to play, I would think, as fair as possible in this arena because there's all sorts of things that people said who never joined the church that are negative about Joseph Smith. There's all sorts of things that people said who were members of the church and then left the church that they said about Joseph Smith and the church that were critical. They're not going there in this kind of argument. They're going to the history of the church, which the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter day Saints itself put together and published and has published for many, many decades now as authoritative. So what could be more fair if you're a critic of the church than to use the materials that are put together and published by the church 
itself. And I think the part that they ignore, and to be to be honest, I can't fault them for this because when you're fully in that system, it's like you can't even see this aspect. But the but the reality for someone like me, and I know someone like you, is that they just assume that critics of the church does not incorporate people who loved the church so much that they studied these things and they encountered these problems as they were studying. But I remember hearing this statement from Joseph Smith in history of the church about, you know, I was able to keep a a church together and, and Christ wasn't. I remember hearing that statement as I was studying history of the church and as a full believer that hit me and it made my, I I would prickle up and say, I don't like that. That doesn't, that feels weird. So they seem to ignore the fact that at least for people who were, were either born in the church or converted to the church, that we cared about the church so much. It's not like we weren't doing the same conclusions based motivated reasoning. They were, it's just at some point or, or that they still are. It's just that at some point there was usually some type of, of event or some type of, click where things finally you're able to get over that motivated reasoning and finally able to set aside that bias at least as much as we can and say i really want to look at this objectively and i really want to follow the evidence that's to me that is all i have done so for any you know i've had friends and and other people reach out to me after we've done these two episodes and everyone's loved it so far but if someone were to want to talk in depth with me about some of the history problems that we've talked about, I'm happy to have that conversation because all I, I don't have to establish anything against Joseph that isn't true. I, I don't, I really don't care to do that. Right. I don't care to lead people out of the church. I really just care about following that. Right. And I feel the same way. I did want to add that I don't want to come across as naive in thinking that there are not issues with the history of the church related to things that were changed or modified over time. And a lot of those go to cementing Brigham Young and the Apostles' authority claims in the LDS Church after Joseph Smith died, that those were changed and written back into the record. And there may certainly be other things. But it's one thing to have a historical analysis, like a comparison of the original document with how it was changed later on when it was put into the history of the church, and use that as a logical basis to question that one issue that's been changed in the history of the church. That's one thing, but it's another thing entirely to know that that has happened and then use that as an excuse to disregard anything that pops up in the history of the church that you don't like or that contradicts your views, regardless of whether there's any evidence to show that this particular statement was modified or changed. Right. And the problem, this is another one of those double binds that we've discussed, because the problem for the LDS church is that they were also the ones who made those changes, right? So if there were changes made to the record, and so now we can't trust the history of the church, it's not critics of the church who made those changes to the history of the church. It's the church itself. So for the believers, that's where they're stuck in this double bind. You may be able to get past the hurdle of, well, maybe Joseph didn't really say that. But then you have to ask yourself the follow-on question, why did prophets, seers, and revelators since Joseph Smith edit the record? And why did they not correct the record until this became a problem that critics of the church raised? Mm. That's where we get back to the argument from necessity. Well, let's make that double bind into a triple bind here. Because if you're going to approach this logically, 
We all know that Joseph Smith wrote very little in his own hand. He depended almost exclusively on scribes for dictating the Book of Mormon and Revelations and the Book of Abraham, for that matter. So he used scribes to produce his revelations almost exclusively, if not exclusively. Now, logically speaking, once you start complaining about scribes having written something down wrong or incorrectly or contrary to Joseph Smith's intent in the history of the church or elsewhere, in order to explain it away as something that Joseph Smith didn't really say, but his scribes got it wrong. What you're doing at the same time, logically speaking, is you're undermining the ability for the reader to trust or take at face value any of the revelations, including the Book of Mormon and the Book of Abraham, where Joseph Smith used scribes to produce those works. Yeah, that's exactly right. And that comes back to my point of, you know, you know, they talk about details versus this meta narrative. And they say, well, critics of the church don't want you to believe the meta narrative. But sometimes the details, the cases around the edges might be wrong. This comes back to what I, I said, right? What is a meta narrative, if not just an aggregation of all those little details? So they want to tell you any particular detail might be wrong, but you should trust the meta narrative. Well, what is a meta narrative except for all those details collected together? Right. And looked at another way, the meta narrative is the conclusion that they've already established at the outset through which they're going to view all the evidence. Exactly. Now we do have a connected idea here. So legally there is, um, so we're, we're moving past this expertise in apologetics, but we're going to kind of talk about some of the um, apologetics in the sense of alternative arguments. And so legally lawyers are able to make alternative arguments. Do you mind explaining to the audience what an alternative argument is from a legal perspective? Oh, sure. Well, if you're bringing a motion, say in front of a judge, generally for suppression of evidence, possibly for admission of evidence, but usually when you're a defense attorney, you want to keep the evidence out. That's going to be hurting you. So if you bring a motion to suppress evidence, you can bring it on one basis. If you have one legal basis to suppress it, you bring that motion. But Frequently, there's more than one basis, more than one legal basis that supports your position. So you frequently lead with your strong suit, your best argument, and you brief that. And then the next section is in the alternative, there's also this other legal basis that requires the court to suppress the same evidence. And it could even be a third alternative as well. If you've got all these different ideas and all these different laws and legal theories that should suppress the evidence, you present those in sequence and you present them in the alternative. And hopefully the judge will bite on at least one of those. Yeah. One of the ways I would invite um, the audience to think about this is it's almost like a flow chart. There are different ways that say, say the motion is about whether a, a particular piece of evidence is admissible. Um, it's almost like a flow chart where there's all these different steps where the evidence could potentially get kicked out by the judge, right? And so the arguments in the alternative are basically saying, well, at stage one, this is my argument for why the, um, why the evidence should get kicked. But if you don't buy that, then at step two, this is my argument for why the evidence should get kicked. And I've seen, uh, I remember I worked on one case with 11 arguments in the alternative, which, mm. uh, always makes it, a lot of fun. <laughs> You're dealing with all these nested conditional type arguments. That's a lot. And also on appeal, when you're going up on appeal and arguing things in the alternative for why it is that your conviction should be reversed. Frequently, when I'm reading appellate reports, and if the conviction is reversed 
on one ground. Often the appellate court will say, we're going to reverse the conviction on this ground, and therefore we do not need to reach the other arguments made by the appellant. Right, right. And in fact, the case I worked on with the 11 different conditionals, that was an appeal. So that's one of the reasons that the case was so complex. Well, so when we come to this idea of arguments in the alternative, the ironic thing is that this, or connected with what we were just talking about, this argument from FAIR regarding history of the church, I think is another good example of the way sometimes uh, apologists will use arguments in the alternative and this idea of arguments from necessity. And what I mean is if you actually were to pull up Fair's page on that statement that Joseph Smith made about holding a church together, which is something that even Christ couldn't do and no other prophet, is Fair engages in all these types of apologetics where it, it gives you four or five different arguments to buy. So the first argument is, well, maybe Joseph Smith didn't make this statement. And then the second argument is, well, yes, maybe Joseph Smith made that statement, but we don't really know the tone he made that statement in. And maybe it wasn't as clear um, when he was there. Maybe maybe it's being taken out of context. And then the third argument is often along the lines of something like, well, yeah, Joseph Smith made that argument, but it's not insulting. It, it's really just a fact. He did keep this church together and he wasn't trying to denigrate Christ. And so I think oftentimes we see these nested alternative arguments and legally you're absolutely allowed to make arguments in the alternative. There are certain conditions on that though. I think the first I would say is that those arguments in the alternative can't be contradictory, or at least they probably shouldn't be contradictory. And I gave RFN this example when we were prepping for this the other day. I talked about this case I had worked on where uh, an attorney moved for, um, they moved for a certain thing, uh, a type of relief called a writ of mandate. Uh, a writ of mandate is establishing that that a government actor typically has to perform some type of function by law that they're not doing. In the alternative, this attorney also asked for the court to, you know, recognize their case under this general statute. Now, the problem with that argument and trying to do those two arguments in the alternative was that as a basis of establishing relief for a writ of mandate, you have to establish that you have no other alternative and speedy adequate remedy at law. And they themselves have had established that in the other part of their case. And so the judge just very quickly disposed of this alternative argument because they were contradictory. And so a lot of times, if you're going to try and take completely contradictory alternative arguments, even if it won't, um, even if the, the judge isn't necessarily legally barred from hearing those, it just blows your credibility out of the water because you're essentially claiming two contradictory things at the same time. Right. And the so, famous story about uh, a defense attorney in closing argument giving contradictory alternative arguments to the jury is that my client was nowhere near where the murder was committed. He was across town with his girlfriend at the time. He has an ironclad alibi. But if he was present when the murder was committed, he was acting in self-defense. Yes. Yeah, that's a good one. And I think the element you just hit on um, is a good one because there's a difference between what judges do, which is kick out things that are not legally allowed or arguments that aren't legally allowed. And then there's the, the end result, which is that unless it's a court trial, the jury is the finder of fact. They get to make the decision on what they think really happened. And so even if arguments in the alternative are legally allowed um, and sometimes they're necessary, 
they often are very hard to sell to a jury because they, they right out the gate are undercutting the argument that you're making on the one hand or the other hand. Right, exactly. So do you see some of that going on in Mormonism, especially with apologetics? Yeah, so we just talked about this statement from FAIR. Let's talk about three of the gospel topics essay. So the DNA essay that we've been talking about um, in the context of John Sorensen's uh, piece that it uses as a footnote, that the art argument and the alternative there is... Man, you might have to pick up the slack here. I'm trying but to think of what I had in mind. I think that maybe what you had in mind is that the DNA essay, first off, let's start with the very basics, okay? DNA research has progressed to the point where scientists have a pretty good handle on the lineage of people who are in the Americas and the Native Americans, right? They got a pretty good handle on this now. There's no Hebrew or Middle Eastern DNA anywhere at least until after, I believe it is, Columbus discovered America and some actual Jewish people started coming over, right? That's a problem. So what the apologists have to do now is to explain why what is obviously a problem isn't really a problem after all. So yes, there's all these... Yeah, go ahead. I was going to say... Jog your memory? That's the clear connection here is that arguments in the alternative are these nested type arguments where you're asking the court or the fact finder to accept one argument after another one has failed. And so I think the, the, the connection here, I think you're absolutely right, is that the DNA issue, let me put it this way. If DNA had uncovered an ancient Hebrew link to Native Americans, that would be on the front page of the Deseret News. The church would talk about it in basically every single general conference that this established that the Book of Mormon's narrative is true. It's only because the DNA evidence has been so fatal to viewing the Book of Mormon's narrative as true that this argument comes up, that they come up with all these explanations for why the DNA evidence isn't a problem. It's not an argument made from the evidence. It's an argument made to protect the conclusion from what the evidence would have people believe if they just followed the evidence. Right. And in this way, I'm sorry, in this way, apologists end up time after time after time having to fight a rear guard action, which is a technical term for the defense and army puts up as it's retreating because they don't have the evidence. And therefore, they're trying to explain why all the evidence that appears to disprove their position doesn't really, and they take little tiny examples like bottlenecks and other things that are rarities, but that do occur in some instances and try and say, well, this is what's happening here. And it could be a bottleneck. It could be something else. It could be something else. It could be something else. And they have a bunch of these nested arguments, these alternative arguments you're mentioning so that you can take your pick or try and say, well, or all of them together, perhaps explain why it is that this DNA problem is not really a problem for the Book of Mormon after all. And it's this alternative thing that you're talking about when you have an unlikely argument that you're making, it's unlikely. And that's what each of these alternatives are. They're incredibly unlikely. But when you start adding an unlikely argument to another unlikely argument, you're not logically speaking, increasing the likelihood that you're correct by adding two unlikely arguments together. What you're actually doing is you're decreasing the likelihood that you're correct. The bottom line is if there were an answer 
that solved the problem, the church would give the answer. You wouldn't have to do all of these different unlikely answers and throw them out there and see what sticks. Right. So speaking of throwing up unlikely answers and see what sticks, we'll go to my favorite gospel topics essay, which is the book of Abraham translation. So I can think of um, at least three different approaches that the book of Abraham translation essay is asking faithful people to espouse. The first is John Gee and Carrie Muhlenstein's more um, literal lost scroll theory. The second is then the catalyst theory, which is that Joseph Smith used the um, Egyptian book of breathings to stimulate a general revelation. And then the third is kind of a combination of the two. Do I have that right? Oh, there are several. Yes. And they have multiplied exponentially since 1967 when the papyri were discovered and found not to match the text of the book of Abraham. Right. And so to dovetail with what you had just said, if there was a clear answer to the from the church's perspective to the origins of the book of Abraham, how to understand the book of Abraham translation, they would just tell you. But instead, they get to this these arguments from necessity, these nested you know, arguments from necessity, where they're telling you you can buy any of these arguments, which obviously is a problem if if we're going to follow the evidence and think of ourselves as logical thinkers on these topics. Yeah, and I suppose, logically speaking, if there were an actual answer, a good answer, one answer to any one of these multitudinous problems with Mormonism and its scriptures, the leaders would be talking about them. But as it is, the lay of the land is the leaders never or virtually never even address these issues head on in order to give an answer to them. They leave that to other people to do. People like me who are just willing to line up and be cannon fodder and go out there and defend the church in spite of the fact that the church doesn't seem to feel it necessary or perhaps possible to defend itself. Yeah, exactly. And that that goes back, I think, to the statement I had made that if there was a clear answer, we would, you know, if there was a piece of evidence that gave us a clear answer, the church would never stop talking about it. The fact that they're always trying to explain away the evidence, I think, shows how weak the position is. Yes. You know, one or two times. OK, if you've got 100 problems and you got good answers for 98 of them, one or two times where there's no answer, I can understand. But this is one of the things that disillusioned me as an apologist is I began to recognize that time after time after time. I am put in the position of having to argue why it is that the evidence against the church is not really as overwhelming as it seems. Right. And one of the statements, uh, I'm not sure if you remember making it, but one of the statements I remember you making, um, uh, the lessons you had learned from apologetics was that um, or one of the things you said, I think in your interview with John DeLynn, is you had said that you noticed as an apologist your brain would often give an explanation based wholly on what you thought the person you were talking to knew. Yes. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And generally I know more about it than the person I'm talking to because that's all I did was study it. And therefore I frame my answer based upon the idea that the other person doesn't know what I know. And I'm not going to tell them what I know. 
I'm just trying to win an argument. I'm not trying to find the truth. Classic example of this was Elder Holland in the famous BBC video with, I think it's Michael Sweeney. John okay. John Sweeney. I, I was corrected on that before. This, this I is actually the second it. time. This is the second time I've gotten to correct that. So for Nemo, for Peter Bleakley, I know my British people. Okay. From now on, it's Mr. Sweeney, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> I got his last name. But when he's talking to Elder Holland and Elder Holland says no about the temple penalties and whether Mitt Romney had taken the temple penalties. And Elder Holland says, there are no temple penalties. There are no penalties in the temple. He switches it to present tense, right? Well, my favorite part about that, you're, you're missing the first statement, which is he says, so he's asked about whether Mitt Romney would have taken, would have taken these penalties. Yes. And Elder Holland says, no. That's and right. there is, if you watch the video, you can see Elder Holland's mind he first says no, and I, I maybe I'm psychoanalyzing him too much, but I feel like Elder Holland realizes that he had just lied. Breaks too far. Says, he, we do not have penalties in the temple, right? Right. So that now his no becomes a denial of the present tense, which is never what was asked. And he's just hoping because he's an apostle. Usually when he talks, people will take whatever it is he's selling and say, that's the answer, regardless of whether it makes any sense to them or whether it holds water. And he's hoping that John Sweeney, yes, he can be taught the United Way, thanks to you, it's working. That John Sweeney uh, will be satisfied with that answer, but he doesn't know that they used to have penalties. And he goes on and does a follow-up question. Well, I've been told that there used to be penalties in the temple, and now Elder Holland is caught because now he knows he can't deny that without lying. So he agrees there used to be penalties. So what happens is he goes from a no, like you mentioned, no, no penalties, tries to put it in present tense, gets pushback, and then has to cave and admit, okay, yeah, there used to be penalties. Right. And, and then, then he goes to, and by the way, then if you watch him, then he goes to his second fallback position, which he hoped he would not have to use, which is well, I'm not aware of any religion that doesn't require its membership to make some kind of sacred covenant with God or sacred promise with God. Right. So our last um, two little alternative argument ideas while we're talking about this is um, recently you and uh, Bill Real on Mormonism Live did an entry about uh, Book of Mormon, the, the Book of Mormon potentially being automatic writing. As you um, put out the invite for that, uh, you had the picture because you were dealing with some statements by uh, this certain apologist is uh, Brian Hales. And so Brian Hales, who I it's know. It's actually John Hales. <laughs> John Hales. Brian Hales is working. On, <laughs> I know he's working on a book regarding Book of Mormon translation. I've been hearing that it's forthcoming for a while. Um, but Brian made some really interesting statements um, about Book of Mormon translation. And I wanted to read one of those uh, because I asked him a question, which he didn't answer uh, regarding the Book of Mormon. So Dr. Hales um, said regarding the 19th century elements of the Book of Mormon, they are not as plentiful as most critics claim. Also, Joseph Smith never said his worms word stream, the sentences that he spoke and his scribes recorded were a literal translation of the content of the plates. The word stream was a revelation, and as a revelation, the messages engraved upon the plates would have been updated for its target audience. That is, the words Joseph Smith smoke, sp spoke excuse me, would not have been a literal translation of the Nephite messages, 
but would have been expanded and modernized for us today. So this argument and the reason that I think. By the way, can I say something right there? Of course. Says who? Brian, (laughs) you're making you're just making stuff up at this point. There's no basis for this except the fact that you have to go there in order to try and explain away all the 19th century stuff that actually is in the Book of Mormon. Yeah, that's exactly right. This is an, and this is why we're talking about it from arguments and the alternative arguments from necessity as we're talking about that idea, right? Is this is an argument that is made because there are so many problems with viewing the text in any other way. This is, this is the last stand of the Book of Mormon. It, this is basically the equivalent of the catalyst theory for the Book of Mormon is, yes. and, and what you have said oftentimes about the catalyst theory, which is completely true is that if one is to accept the catalyst theory, you are at least logically accepting a a theory that from all external evidence is completely indistinguishable from a conscious fraud. Right. That's got to be your last ditch effort. And that's what the church is. Their back's up against the wall. They have to go to the catalyst theory because there's nothing else available at this point that they can still believe the Book of Mormon is inspired while still recognizing the fact that it is chock full of 19th century elements. It is a 19th century document for Brian Hales to say that there really aren't that many, as critics say, of 19th century elements. Well, yeah, Brian, except for the fact that it's from beginning to end. It's all 19th century. But here's so, the thing, though. Here's the thing. You're, you're right about that, RFM. But here's the thing. One, one indicates that it's not a ancient historical document. One. Right. So one when, proves it, actually. It proves it exactly. So the fact that it's not as plentiful as critics claim is completely irrelevant. And Brian right. knows that. That to me, that is a bad faith argument. The other reason that I wanted to bring up this quote, and it was a question I asked of Dr. Hales, which he didn't answer, is we often hear that one of the strongest evidences for an ancient Book of Mormon is chiasmus. The idea of chiasmus being a you know ancient Hebrew writing structure would completely go out the window. If one were to buy Brian Hale's theory of a revelation book of Mormon, right? If Joseph Smith is updating and adapting some modern or some ancient core, how you even get to deciding what's ancient, and what's modern is beyond me. Again, we're just at argument from necessity land. But if you get to that point, all these arguments about little linguistic, uh, links to ancient Hebrew people have to go out the window, throw out your Nahum, throw out your argument of Jershon or land of Jershon, throw out your arguments regarding chiasmus, because if Joseph Smith is the one who's actually shaping this language, or at least participating in it in some way, those arguments to me, those are, those are completely inconsistent as an alternative argument basis with Brian Hale's theory. Well, that's the old tight translation, loose translation argument that's gone back forever. And what it usually comes down to for apologists, and it certainly did for me, is that when we can establish, I'll put quotes around that, when we can establish connections with the old world in the Book of Mormon, that's when it was tight translation. And when it looks a lot like the 19th century America production, that's when it was loose translation. Right. And all the meanwhile, they're ignoring the conclusion right in front of them, which is maybe these things are irreconcilable because as Occam's razor would dictate, it's fictional, right? That's that's the conclusion that they don't even allow themselves to consider. Yes. And by the way, when you're talking about Brian Hales and there's not as many 19th century elements in the Book of Mormon 
as critics think. And I said, no, there aren't. It's only one from beginning to end. It reminded me of what my dad used to say to his friends about me when I was a teenager, that my son eats only one meal a day from morning till night. Yeah, that's good. Um, while we're talking about the last little, we've already talked about this talk, actually, but Elder Oaks 1985 talk about the salamander letter uh, that you brought up earlier. That's our last little argument from the alternative argument from necessity. Um, for people who haven't read that talk, I'm not going to read the entirety of it. But it's very interesting that Dallin Oaks in 1985 gives a talk chastising the media and members for uh, viewing the salamander letter of Mark Hoffman forgery as anything other than faith promoting when it was completely fraudulent. And then later he has to make an argument from necessity um, or sorry, he's making this argument from necessity that then was based completely on fraud. And then later, you know, takes the exact opposite position. Oh, right. Exactly. And that was actually published in the Enzyme magazine. I think it was in December of 85. But these comments that he had made explaining why it is that for the Hoffman treasure digging letter to describe Moroni as a salamander that transforms itself into a man is completely consistent with how we would expect Joseph Smith to have described Moroni. It was at that point that I realized it wasn't when it happened. I mean, this was shaking me. It was shaking everybody at the time back in the mid-1980s, these letters. But Elder Oaks' comments about it, his attempts to justify it, did not convince me. And I wanted to believe. It's like when you have a client who's so bad at telling the truth that you wouldn't believe him if the sky, if he said the sky were blue. I wanted to believe him. I wanted to believe Elder Oaks, but still, that wasn't persuasive to me. But looking at it more recently, in retrospect, I realized that if apologists, and he got his stuff from farms, that's where he got the research in order to say this stuff. If an apologist is going to explain or defend a salamander letter as being a justified description of the angel Moroni, then there is nothing that an apologist cannot justify or explain away. Right. And this one's very telling because not only are, are you right about that, right? This argument from necessity that he has to make is then later demonstrated to be com based on complete bullshit, right? And so he, no one puts two and two together or not no one, but believing members don't put the two and two together that like, hey, wait, <laughs> he made this argument that this is completely consistent based on evidence that was later discovered to be completely fraudulent. Right, exactly. And I'm going to say something that's horrible. I've said it before. So please cover your ears if you don't like hearing horrible things. But it's obvious that, I'll go ahead and describe this, why it is I'm going to say this horrible thing. It's because obviously the best thing that happened to the church in the 1980s was that these documents were found to be forgeries by Mark Hoffman. We would not have discovered that they were forgeries, except for the fact that he murdered those people. Or let's just say it didn't look like there was any way it was going to be discovered as forgery, since they have all the experts lining up saying they're authentic. And that's why I say that the best thing that ever happened to the church was that Mark Hoffman blew up those people in the 1980s. That was the horrible thing. Yeah. Well, you know, obviously it's, it's, it's an interesting, if we could jump into an alternative universe for a second. That's where I live. Right. It's an, <laughs> right. I'm wearing my Dr. Strange in the Multiverse of Madness shirt, which is perfect for this line of thinking. But awesome. 
it's interesting to think about the plans that Mark Hoffman had to uh, create the McClellan collection and then eventually, at least purportedly, to create a forgery of the lost 116 pages. It's interesting to think about what that would have looked like and the effect it would have had on the church. Yes. And we get to the point now where even in recent general conferences, there have been general authorities who have stood up and used Mark Hoffman as a cautionary tale. That there are people who are leaving the church now over issues with church history. But there were a lot of people who left the church in the 1980s over the Salamander letter. And they left the church. And guess what, Colby? Later on, that letter was discovered to have been a forgery. So those people ended up leaving the church over a forgery, thereby trying to draw the connection that don't be leaving the church today because you may find out that that was a forgery too. Whatever reason it is that you've got for leaving the church today is just as inauthentic as Mark Hoffman's forgeries were. Yeah, if only the members had some type of, I don't know, person who could see or discern that could help them um, make a decision on what is fraudulent before um, murders happen or the world dictates that those things are fraudulent. If only there was that type of person in the LDS church. I know it's unfortunate. All we have is people trying to describe why the Salamander letter, while thinking it's authentic, is not a problem for church history. And then after it's discovered to be not authentic, once again, it becomes not a problem for church history. Right. And so now we've reached the end of the station here. Um, You have been so gracious to let me extend an invitation to do one episode with you into three, but I'm glad that people have enjoyed it and that I obviously have a scope creep problem when I start a project. So this is our concluding thought is we're going to talk about burdens of proof and we're going to talk about standards of evidence. And I've already kind of talked about why I think this is important, but I want to reiterate it. I um, have friends and family members who are still wonderful people and are still completely believing members of the church. And I truly do not want to challenge their faith or to take people out of the church when it's working for them. But I want people to be aware of the reality of the organization they're connected to and to, like we had talked about earlier, to be um, to recognize how many logical circles that our conclusions are based on, because every single one of us, like I've said, our conclusions are always based on a little bit of circular logic. It just is the way it is. Can I give you the basic circular logic that forms the foundation for the LDS church today? Yes. The prophet will never lead the church astray because the prophet said that the prophet will never lead the church astray. Right. (laughs) And then when he does, um, you know, there's all those fun apologetics that we already we already know that he can't. We've already reached our conclusion. Therefore, no matter how bad the situation is or how many people are kept from holding the priesthood because of their race, it therefore cannot qualify as leading the church astray. Right. I guess it all depends on our definition of astray, which is, you know, a, a question I had asked on a Mormonism live of. Jim Bennett a few months ago. Well, recently, you know, they went to two-hour church. And when they went to two-hour church, they cut out the opening prayer for the second hour because they're only there for two hours. We've got to get stuff done that we used to get done in the three hours. And recently now, President Nelson has come out with the dictate that, yes, we are going to start doing an opening prayer at the beginning of the second hour 
of church and I posted it on my Facebook page and I said, whew, the prophet came this close to leading the church astray. Yeah, one of the things I thought was interesting about that statement is, and maybe they've done it before, I don't know, but I actually think that statement gets a lot of credit in the sense that the church's newsroom who released that statement, they specifically pointed to when the change was made, the change to not have a prayer and acknowledge that they were actually changing things. If they were to use their modus operandi, they would have just pretended that we've always said prayers at the beginning of second hour. And how dare anyone think that we'd ever thought or done differently? Hmm, Good point. Maybe at some point it becomes obvious even to them that you can't fool the people who are on the ground and have been living the reality of no opening prayer at the beginning of the second hour for years now. And so let's talk about burdens of proof. So legally, who bears the burden of proof on any particular claim, RFM? The one who brings the claim, who makes the allegation. That's right. And in fact, this idea of shifting the burden of proof and trying to create an instance where the other side has to prove a negative, prove that your claim is not true, that's known as impermissibly shifting the burden of proof. And this often there are often arguments to this effect in criminal cases that prosecutors have improperly shifted the burden of proof. And to do so, according to the Supreme Court of the United States, is reversible error, which means that the case has to start all over again. And in fact, maybe the, the individual, if we're talking about a criminal case, if the error is egregious enough and intentional enough, perhaps the person um, just goes free, for lack of a better term. Right. And I can tell you a couple of stories about that. I'll try and make them quick. First off, here in my state in Washington state, it had long been the rule that if rape was alleged against a guy, that a defense to rape is consent. And usually it's the most common kind of defense is consent. It wasn't something that he did to this woman against her will. She was consenting to it. Now, the law had been forever that the allegation of rape could be made and the defendant could raise the defense of consent. But once the defendant raised the issue of consent, the burden was on the defendant to prove by a preponderance of the evidence, which means more likely than not, that the victim or the alleged victim had consented. And if the defendant is able to prove that, then the jury is instructed that they are to acquit. Now, a few years ago, that entire line of cases got upended and reversed because the Supreme Court changed its position and recognized what I think is obvious, which is that in order to have a defendant prove the defense of consent, you have thereby shifted the burden of proof to the defendant. Now, the reason why that is, is because the non-consent of the alleged rape is an element of the offense that the state has to prove beyond a reasonable doubt. If you're talking about self-defense, it's still there. It's still something the defendant has to prove, okay? But in this case, in this limited kind of case where consent is the issue, what the Supreme Court now said is that, and when I say that, I mean the Washington State Supreme Court down in Olympia. What they said was, no, the lack of consent is an element the state has to prove beyond a reasonable doubt, and it is constitutional and reversible error to shift that burden to the defendant to prove it himself, which had been done for decades, of course. But now they're reversing all of that. So that's a classic instance of shifting the burden of proof. Another one, this is a personal story, has to do with a trial I was in, oh my gosh, 20 years ago. I don't know how long ago. It was a felony trial. It was some kind of sex offense, and it amounted mostly to 
a he said, she said. There wasn't a lot of corroborating evidence one way or the other, and it was up to the jury to decide the credibility of the witnesses. Now, that doesn't change the fact that the burden is still on the state to prove beyond a reasonable doubt each and every element of the crime alleged. And the individual who's representing the state was the um, the chief criminal deputy. So we're in trial. We're in closing argument. And the chief criminal deputy is up there making his pitch to the jury. And at one point, he says, it's really not that complicated. It's very simple, actually. If you believe her, the alleged victim, then you convict. If you believe him, my client, the defendant, then you acquit. And although I don't like objecting during closing argument, it's generally frowned upon to object during closing argument. I nevertheless objected. And I said, I'm sorry, Your Honor, I have to object, but that's a complete misstatement of the law. And the judge looked at me and said, sustained. And so now the chief criminal deputy has to revamp his argument after having been smacked down in front of the jury for the argument he was making. If this isn't clear enough to those who are listening, in a criminal case, you have to prove it beyond a reasonable doubt. It's not you have two people testifying, and if you believe her, you convict, and if you believe him, you acquit. No, you have to believe her beyond a reasonable doubt. What he was doing was shifting it from beyond a reasonable doubt to a preponderance of evidence, a much lower burden of proof. So that has to do with the shifting of the burden of proof that you're talking about. Those are my stories. Please go back to what you were saying, Colby. No, I love those stories. And yeah, that that second story is a good illustration of the next concept, which the burden of proof is who bears the burden, right? The next idea, which is very similar, is the standard of proof. So what am I required to prove? And you just talked about the standard that's applicable in a criminal trial, which is beyond a reasonable doubt and how the what the prosecutor in that case was actually trying to do. You're exactly right. They were trying to to not necessarily change the burden, but it sounds like they were more trying to change the standard and lower the standard below what the constitution requires, which is beyond a reasonable doubt. And so let's talk about that definition. So Idaho in Idaho, I pulled our definition of what a reasonable doubt is. And I'm sure every state is going to have something along these same lines, but maybe with, you know, little nuances here. And so I'll try it first from memory, see how it matches. Sure. Of course. A reasonable doubt is a doubt which a reasonable person would have after fully, fairly, and carefully considering all of the evidence or lack of evidence. How does that match yours? That's very close. Ours is a reasonable doubt is not mere possible or imaginary doubt. It is doubt based on reason and common sense. It may arise from a careful and impartial consideration of all the evidence or from the lack of evidence. I always, as a prosecutor, um, I always really liked highlighting the line, it is doubt based on reason and common sense. And that's the one that we wanted to talk about as we're talking about the overall conclusion of um, someone's participation in the LDS church. As we're talking about the burden of proof and people impermissibly shifting the burden of proof, one of the um, threads I think is important to talk about is the burden of proof fallacy, the idea of shifting the burden of proof and holding our beliefs unless they can be disproved. And the the British uh, philosopher Bertrand Russell gave us a really good illustration of this with Russell's teapot. Are you familiar with that analogy? Vaguely, that analogy? it has to do with some sort of teapot out there circling the earth or something. Yeah, it's the same basic idea behind the flying spaghetti monster and other types of ridiculous assertions. It's that if you assert that there's a teapot, I believe it's between the moon and the sun or between the sun and the earth, but it's completely indetectable. Then if you hold that belief and say, well, no one can disprove it, 
that really you haven't proven anything. And obviously the connection for Russell um, is that that's how many people define God, or that's how many people want to, uh, that's the standard of proof that many people want to apply to their religious beliefs. The common apologetic I hear um, in Mormonism, and in fact, I pulled this from another fair Mormon uh, page, was this type of statement, something like, if you're going to claim that Joseph Smith failed in the particular page I was looking at was on the book of Abraham, but you could apply this to whatever aspect. They will then say, you have to explain away all of the things he got right. That's the type of impermissible, in my view, impermissible shifting of the burden of proof, because that's absolutely not true. If we can come back to the discussion we were having about Brian Hales and the 19th century elements of the Book of Mormon, right? We were talking, you were saying, oh yeah, there's and you're right about this. It's one long anachronism from beginning to end, or it's full of anachronisms. The truth is that one single anachronism is fatal to the claim of an ancient Book of Mormon. The analogy that I've used before, um, and maybe it's because it has this connection with forging and, and Mark Hoffman, but let's say that our job, our uh, test in this case, is to establish whether a particular bill, which is purported to come from like the early days of the country, is actually historical, okay? And so we have this bill in front of us. We start doing all this analysis. We do analysis on the layout of the bill, the paper, the ink, the dating. Those are all different indications of authenticity. And the picture of Alfred E. Newman on the front. Exactly. If we <laughs> if we have all of those if we have all those things, but let's say the secretary of the treasurer, which is on the bill, Sam and Chase. Uh, I don't know off the top of my head, but let's say that that signature is off for the date on the bill, right? Okay, it's right. an anachronism. Do we have to explain how the forger got all of those little instances right? How they got paper that matched the time period, that they had ink that matched the time period, that they had everything else laid out correctly before we correctly conclude that that bill is a forgery? Absolutely not. One single anachronism is fatal to the claim of historicity. In this I like sense. your analogy. I think I'm going to try to remember that for future reference. Yeah, it's one of the reasons that I get so frustrated when apologists will throw up. And I hear this from uh, people a lot on Reddit. They'll say something like, I know that there's a lot of good evidence against the church, but there's also a lot of good reasons to stay. And so I just stay. And again, I don't really want to lead people out of the church if they don't think that's what's best for them. But I think people need to recognize that making a decision based on that level of logic is not a logical decision, right? That's a decision made out of convenience, necessity, and based on possibility, not based on plausibility, which is the difference there is obviously going to be what's more likely something that's possible, right? It's possible that the sun doesn't come up tomorrow. Is it plausible? No, it's not plausible. And oftentimes apologetic works are hiding in those possibilities while pretending that they're plausibilities. And that's just not true. Interestingly. So I think that for the common member, if it works for them, if they feel good about it, if they have a testimony of it, that's fine. My objection, and I sense it's yours as well, is that when apologists start wading into the ring, claiming to use logic and history as a discipline and evidence in a lawyerly kind of courtroom way that they do that 
And then typically what they do is they end up violating so many of those rules that they are pretending to play by in order to make their point and hope that they don't get caught in the process by someone who realizes what it is they're doing. Now, Brian Hales, this was interesting because we talked about him a little bit on a recent episode of Mormonism Live, basically Book of Mormon stuff, right? Which he knows nothing about except for what he's read. I mean, he's obviously an intelligent individual. I'm sure he can read and assimilate. So I don't mean to... But but when you say he doesn't know about it, you mean... So he's Dr. Brian Hales, but his doctor, like he's a medical doctor and anesthesiologist, right? So he's not a, what you're saying is he doesn't have any pre-existing expertise that makes him better at analyzing the Book of Mormon's historicity than you or I. That's what you're saying. Yes. Thank you. Thank you for that. He's about the most perky anesthesiologist I think I've ever met. But talking about him and he's doing this deal where he's identified the different secular or naturalistic explanations for the Book of Mormon. Of course, the church has its one explanation, which he's monkeying with even as he speaks. It's really not a translation anymore. It's a revelation, but God is involved. Let's put that over there as the church's explanation. And then there's all these different secular explanations. Well, he's engaged in this practice of saying that if I strike down and prove wrong all the secular explanations, then the only one that remains must be true. And since the only one that remains is God did it, then God must have done it. So this is his way of trying to introduce logic and evidence into a discussion, which he wants to lead to his conclusion, which of course he's already decided in in advance. Having said all of that, what he said to Bill Real in a Facebook post was that he would be happy to go on Bill's show and have Bill defend any one of these several secular naturalistic explanations that he's identified for the Book of Mormon. Of course he would, because he's just completely switched the burden of proof. Brian Hales is the one who needs to be proving that the Book of Mormon is true. But instead, if he can work it so that he can flip that burden of proof to somebody else, and say, no, you need to prove it's not true, i.e. not divine, then he has completely flipped the burden of proof and now put it on to somebody else. And if that person is not clever enough or knowledgeable enough about how burdens of proof work, then they can take it upon themselves. And now Brian Hales is sitting in the catbird seat because he successfully switched the burden of proof. Right. And the reason we brought up the thought experiment of Russell's teapot is that Russell's teapot is used, you know, Russell was an atheist thinker. And the reason that he created that um, thought experiment is that what he's demonstrating is that if you're willing to engage in that burden of proof shifting game, like Brian Hales is, you can believe in the most ridiculous things and expect people to disprove them. And they won't, in some instances they can, but in many instances they will not be able to carry that burden of proof. But instead, I think it's important to remember that if we're going to be logical thinkers, um, and I've, I've heard this said before by, you know, certain atheistic thinkers, and I, I truthfully don't know where I fall on that spectrum, uh, full disclosure, but I've heard it said before that they hate the fact that atheism or atheist is a word, right? We don't have a word for people who don't believe in, we don't have a specific word for people who don't believe in leprechauns or or fairies. Instead, 
and this comes back to our idea of who holds the burden, right? It's the party making the affirmative claim. I think particularly for people who are raised in the LDS church or have been in it for so long and held it so dear to them, they can forget that most people in the world do not believe in the Book of Mormon, right? They just don't. And so they would, if maybe they would, if they were offered sufficient evidence to believe in it. But the fact that people don't believe in it, the fact that most people don't believe in it, means that the people who do hold the burden of proof. And it's, it's in my view, it's not logical thinking to constantly shift the burden of proof and say, before we reach any conclusion, you critics have to explain away all of these things. Particularly when it comes to the Book of Mormon translation, I'm so sick of hearing from believers that the church's theory is that it was translated or revealed by the gift and power of God. They'll hang on this one phrase that Joseph Smith used when he was asked about the coming forth of the Book of Mormon, I think in 1831. And that's not a theory at all. Like there are, there are many, if the, if the church or the believers want to offer a theory, a cohesive single theory on how the Book of Mormon came forth, explaining away the 19th century elements, they need to do that right. In in a way that's actually articulable, that isn't just made up out of necessity every time. Right. Can I give you a different perspective on that statement that I came to recently after what, 33 years now dealing with the law as a career and crime? Of course. Usually what the apologists do is they, they want to disregard all of the witnesses who actually say it was word for word. There was a tight translation as tight as it could possibly be. That's not working with it being a 19th century production, which is becoming more and more obvious. So therefore we're going to jettison all the witnesses who described with specificity what was going on. And we're going to go with Joseph Smith and say, well, he was the only one looking in the hat. So he's the only one who knew. And he never said anything specific about it. And in fact, when his brother Hiram Smith in front of a bunch of other members of the church asked Joseph Smith if he would detail for them the process of the coming forth and translation of the Book of Mormon, Joseph Smith demurred. And he says, no, it was never meant for the world to know all the specifics of it. I'm just going to tell you that it was translated by the gift and power of God. So as a defense attorney, as someone who's been dealing with criminal law for over three decades, the question that comes to my mind is, why not? Why don't you want to take this invitation that is given to you with a direct question from your brother Hiram in front of a group of observers to tell us how it happened? Why is it that it was never meant for the world to know? Why is it that you don't want to tell anybody how it happened? And to me, that starts sounding a little bit like maybe Joseph Smith felt that if he went there, it would not be received as well as he hoped it would be. Right. And I think I think that what that I think clearly demonstrates is that, you know, Brian Hales or other apologists who do this burden shifting approach, really, Joseph Smith was doing the same thing right back in 1831. He's basically not making an affirmative claim on where the Book of Mormon came from, aside from this vague statement that it came from God. And so what is he doing it, it, for critics? It's it's then expecting critics to offer their theory of where the Book of Mormon comes from before the believing side is ever even able to do that in a cohesive and singular way. Right. And I think it's you who brought it up before that. Honestly, Brian, before we even go there, what you have to do first as apologists and as members of the church is you have to come up with your own one theory as to how the Book of Mormon was produced. Because what he's complaining about is the critics having multiple theories, and he's presenting as if he has only the one theory he's defending, when actually there are as many theories as to how the Book of Mormon was translated by the gift and power of God 
as there are theories about how it was not translated by the gift and power of God. So physician, heal thyself. Come up with your one theory, Brian. You guys get all on the same page. And once you're on the same page, which will never happen, once you're all on the same page, then you will have the moral high ground, maybe to criticize the critics for not being on the same page. Yeah. And as a last little concluding thought on this idea of uh, burdens of proof and, and standards of proof and being logical thinkers, as we've said before, and this is this is something I think it's important to admit is that every single one of us ultimately accepts some things on faith. And by faith, I would also say that means we accept some things on logical circles, right? The first one I can think of, the most obvious example, is the idea that we can think, right? That I'm not just the sum of my inputs, that I'm more than that, that we can logically think, we can logically reason. And so all of us do that. And I think it's important then, um, one of the questions we'd had after we did part one was, how do we talk to the TBMs in our life about this? And so I think it's important to acknowledge that every single one of us relies at some point on questions of faith or questions of logic circles. We all do it. And so we should talk about how our level of certainty in something should affect how strongly we hold that belief. And I think to close kind of this idea, at least for me, there's a quote from Galileo that really resonates with me. Um, Galileo had, had said at one time, you know, I do not feel obliged to believe that the same God who has endowed us with senses, reason, and intellect has intended us to forego their use and by some other means give us knowledge which we can obtain by them. And so I absolutely recognize that for certain people, they believe in the church because of the good experiences they've had. And as long as they recognize that that may mean that those uh, conclusions aren't reached through an exercise of logic, and maybe they should hold them a little looser than they do, I really don't have any complaints or gripes. It's really just with the people who pretend, and I know we've called some of them out specifically, it's really with the people who pretend that they've reached these conclusions through an exercise of reason, through an exercise of logic, when that's just not true. These are questions of faith, and it's okay I think it's actually okay for them to just say, this is a question of faith. And so I rely on my faith. I rely on my personal experiences. Let's just be honest about that so that people have that informed consent and they can decide whether or not they're able to create those experiences and rely on those um, as well. Right. And of course, that's similar what Galileo said to what Hamlet says in his famous quote, what is a man if his chief good and market of his time be but to sleep and feed? A beast, no more. But then the money quote, right? Sure, he, that's God. Sure, he that made us with such large discourse, looking before and after the future and the past, looking before and after, gave us not that capability and godlike reason to fust in us unused. Yes, that's exactly right. Um, before we we're done for the day, I just want to thank you again so much for Don't having thank me yet. I've got one more story. Oh, go ahead. Because I want to work this in. I actually had two stories. I'm going to cut it down to one. But this whole idea, once again, let's end where we began with Elder Oaks and that comment about it's not the church's responsibility to tell you both sides of the story. There's such a thing in the law as an ex parte hearing. And you know what that is, Colby. What's an ex parte hearing? Yeah, ex parte means essentially without the other party. So it's it's going to be one party appearing in front of the judge without the other party knowing. Right. As a general rule, having an ex-party contact with the judge is forbidden 
for obvious reasons. You can't be contacting the judge about a case without the other party present or knowing about it. Can I give you one um, one little experience with ex parte communications is I so I used to work as in-house counsel for um, our state's tax commission and the state tax commission. So it was a very unique situation because essentially I would be the tax commission's in-house lawyer. But every year we would have these big administrative hearing processes where taxpayers could come in and protest a decision of tax commission staff to the tax commissioners themselves to avoid infringing on people's due process rights because a decision reached solely through ex parte communications is going to violate someone's due process rights. The court has been very clear about that. We would have to have just a complete siloing for the period of those administrative hearings, which made it very weird. I would pass by my bosses who the rest of the time I could openly, the rest of the year, I could openly talk with all year. But for those two weeks, I had to, because I was the attorney who would argue those cases in front of them, I would have to tell them, it is not proper for us to talk right now. I know you just want to talk to me about the football game or whatever, but to avoid the appearance of impropriety, it's best if we just don't talk for these two weeks. Right. And so there are ex party hearings. In fact, every day there's an ex party calendar over in the court and it's at 115. And the idea is this, this comes up regularly that if there is an issue that is emergent, and that needs a ruling from a judge right away, then you can go and approach the judge. It's not going to be after a case is filed. It's going to be before a case is filed and frequently involves restraining orders or no contact orders or something like that. You just can't wait to have the all the notice and the filing to be heard by a judge. So what will happen, of course, is that the judge will issue a ruling, either yay or nay, and then set it on for a full hearing on the subject where the other side is notified and can come in to represent their case frequently after they've been kicked out of their own house, et cetera, et cetera. But regardless of that, the church has put itself in the position of telling us that everything they're going to tell us is an ex-party hearing. We're only one of the parties, the other party represented by the anti-Mormons or the media or whoever, they're not allowed in here. In fact, we don't want you to even talk to them. Don't listen to them. Just listen to this, to us. This is an ex-party hearing. Now, somebody might have the idea that when you're in an ex-party hearing and you control the platform and the other person isn't there to contradict you, now it's open season and you can say whatever you want and you can make your case as good as you want, regardless of what the evidence is. In other words, it's a huge open arena for you to do whatever it is you want without fear of contradiction. That is actually the exact opposite of the standard that applies. Because, Which is the reason I think I told my story, right? Yeah. Is the reason I can't have those those ex parte communications is because I, if I'm the only one communicating with the decision maker, I need to not be less careful about <laughs> what I say. I need to be utmost careful. Right. We always have the duty of candor to the tribunal, which means we always have to tell the truth. But when it's an ex parte hearing and we're the only ones there, then that burden is not decreased. It is increased. It is not lessened. It is heightened. And we have to be there and we have to tell all the bad stuff about our case that we know that typically we wait for the other side to bring up. We have to tell it all to the judge so the judge can make an informed decision. It's rife with the possibility of abuse. And so that's why the standard is in there. And I'm familiar, it's been a number of years now where a local attorney went in front of a judge on an ex-party hearing about a no contact order. 
made misrepresentations to the judge in order to get the judge to issue the no contact order, which the judge did. And then when these material misrepresentations were discovered, a complaint was filed against that attorney and they ultimately ended up being disbarred for that. So I'm just trying to underscore and highlight the fact that when you're the only person telling one side of the story, that your duty, at least in a court of law, your duty to tell the truth and the other side of the story is heightened, not decreased, as I think leaders of the church, including Elder Oaks, would have it. Yeah, that is a very good point, I think, to uh, or a very good point and a very good story to end on is to remember that that's the the level of person that um, people who want to remain in the church, that's that's the leader, right? Dallin H. Oaks is the next president of the church provided that he outlives President Nelson. Um, and so that's, you know, that's what he views as it's a great irony when the church in defending itself from its own history and knowledge of the way it behaves lowers the standards so much that we have two attorneys saying, yeah, I wouldn't touch that with a 10 foot pole. Right. Right. No, he's not not doing this. He's not talking about this from a legal perspective. He's talking about this from his perspective as an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is applying a standard that I wouldn't even apply in my legal practice. What does that say about the ethics of someone who can do that? They're not great. Those ethics are not great. And that's the thing about Elder Oaks is we know his career was in law. We know that he knows all of this stuff that we're talking about. What we're talking about is not super sophisticated lawyer stuff. This is kind of 101 stuff especially ex parte and candor to the tribunal. And what he does is he goes out there, even with his career in law, he tries to bank on his career in law in some ways in order to give him credibility at the same time as he is violating all of the basic rules of law that he knows exist in order to ensure the accuracy and credibility of evidence being admitted in a court of law. That's right. That's right. So can I thank you now for... Yes, you may thank me now. Actually, I just interrupted you so you would thank me twice. Go ahead, please. Well, I just wanted to thank you so much for allowing me to be on Radio Free Mormon. Uh, like I think I've said before, um, your podcast and and listening to Mormonism Live, even just the friendship that we've struck up over the last year and the, the chats we'll have, have been very important to me. So it's a great honor to be on Radio Free Mormon. Um, and thank you to all the listeners who've reached out and said kind things about the now we'll have done the, the third part. and. Honestly, thank you so much for being there for me and being there for my family through the last year. It's been very appreciated. Wow, thank you. You're very welcome. Believe me, the honor is mine because I always appreciate and like to count as friends individuals who stand up for what they believe in, even at great personal cost to themselves. And that fits you and that fits your wife. Thank you. You're welcome. Okay, so the Mutual Admiration Society is now officially over. Who's going to give the closing prayer? No, seriously. Thank you very much, Colby. I hope everybody's enjoyed this. This is the third and final episode on Mormonism and the rules of evidence. If you appreciate what you hear at Radio Free Mormon, please take the time to go to the RadioFreeMormon.org webpage, click donate, and make a monthly recurring donation today, $5 a month, $10 a month, $20 a month, whatever you can afford. Your contributions do keep Radio Free Mormon broadcasting behind enemy lines. Well, that's about all for tonight. Until next time, this is Radio Free Mormon, signing off the air. <laughs>